Hi, everyone. Welcome to What About Grief? I'm Larry Holm. February. It's a short month that can feel endless. More darkness than sunlight and winter temperatures that are great if you're into ice fishing, but challenging at best for so many of us. The combination of cold weather and darkness can be really tough emotionally because we're not out and about as much. It can result in people feeling more isolated and that feeling of isolation can lead also to loneliness, especially if you have recently lost a loved one or a friend. In this episode, we're going to unpack loneliness, what it is, how to cope with it yourself and people around you, and how to make sure it doesn't lead to depression. Since my wife, Sarah, passed away in 2021, I've noticed how different loneliness feels now compared to my single days before I met her. Now, let me clarify. Sure, at times I felt lonely when I was single, but in retrospect, I don't think I dwelled on it. I was young and my social life was so much more active compared to now. Life changed when I got married. My time was spent being part of a couple, and that meant my time was invested with my spouse. Maybe now my loneliness is solely based on specifically missing Sarah and the experiences we made together, and not so much on just being a single person. I miss her presence as now I go to places we used to go to, but I go alone and that has led to feelings of loneliness and a void in my heart. Well, that's my assessment. We will see what my guests think about my unscientific study. By the way, if I had to name my Mount Rushmore of most prevalent emotions of grief since 2021, loneliness would definitely make that list. Maybe on a future episode, I'll break down my top four, so stay tuned for that. Okay. Let's hear from two experts on loneliness to give us their insights and wisdom on this topic. They have each studied and researched loneliness extensively, and I'm excited to jump in and chat with them. In doing my research, I came across one of our guests today, Dr. Louise Hawkley of NORC at the University of Chicago. She's a research scientist and leading expert in the study of loneliness, particularly how it affects health during aging and Dr. Wendy Lichtenthal of the Center for the Advancement for Bereavement Care at Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center in the University of Miami Health System, and formerly of Memorial Sloan Kettering. She is a clinical psychologist who specializes in helping cancer patients and their loved ones through grief, bereavement, and loss. Welcome, Louise and Wendy, to the podcast. I'm so grateful you both could join us today. Pleasure to be here. So glad to be here, Larry. All right. So let me kick things off here by saying it seems like it's difficult for us to admit to others that we can be lonely. So my name is Larry Holm, and I at times feel lonely. There, <laughs> I did it. <laughs> so Louise, describe the difference between the state of being alone and experiencing loneliness. Yes, that's a good question. And you alluded to it when you were talking about the dark days of February and how it can feel isolating because you do tend to cocoon yourself. There's not much going out. But that's being alone. And loneliness is feeling alone. And I think you're not alone in having experienced loneliness. Everybody's probably experienced it at some point in their life. And Ironically, it has very little to do with who's around you or not around you. It's how you feel 
in that social context, whether it's alone or with other people. And a lot of people will attest to the fact that feeling that way when you're around other people is excruciating. You kind of expect it when you're alone, but if you're around other people and you don't feel like you connect with them, like you belong, that's lonely-making in, in the most unpleasant way. I would also add that isolation, although it has its own cost, is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, people choose isolation in the sense that they choose solitude. They choose to have time alone because that time can itself be restorative. It can be a time to be creative. Um, whereas being lonely, almost by definition, it's not a choice. It's unpleasant. You would rather not be. The unfortunate thing is, and we might get into this, but the unfortunate thing is when you're lonely, you can get caught up in a bit of a cognitive loop and not see that, in fact, you are contributing to your own loneliness, that there are things you can do to get out of that loneliness loop. And, and Wendy, I, I've noticed that since my wife passed away, there are times, kind of picking up on what Louise said, there are times I can't wait to leave the party or the holiday, you know, party with the family or going out with friends. I can't wait to just leave and be alone back at my house. Why, why is that? Sure. Well, I could think of a couple of different reasons. One is because when you're out in public um, and you are trying to connect, you may not be sharing all that you did as you did at the start of this at, at the start of this discussion, which was kind of naming the truth of what you were feeling. And when we're in social situations, especially for those who are grieving, um, trying to figure out how to connect might mean pushing down the truth of what you're really feeling. Um, missing, for example, Sarah being there by your side um, and having uh, the face you put on very much different than what you're feeling internally. And, and that's an uncomfortable place to be. It's exhausting. It's a lot of work. So that's at least one reason you might want to get out of that situation. The other reason is because people say stupid things sometimes, right? Yes, they say, yes. How are you doing, Larry? And, <laughs> I'm awesome. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> so you know that the that part of it where there's it could feel like a misattunement or that you're trying to make pe other people feel comfortable in their misstep of what they say. Um, again, a lot of work and not feeling connected. Um, so wanting to get out of a situation where you're putting on a face and working in that way, where you're trying to, where you're trying to not react authentically to something someone said that was really off, a real misstep, um, makes a lot of sense. So even though it would be, you would think, being around people could feel better, if they aren't connecting with you, they don't know what you're really feeling and you don't feel comfortable sharing that truth the way you opened up today, um, it's not going to feel great. And the alternative of being by yourself will, where you can be authentic would feel better. So it makes a lot of sense hmm. that you'd want to get out of there. Yeah. And in fact, that's a nice way of putting another uh, color onto the definition of loneliness, it has very little to do with the number of people you're around. It's really tied to the quality of your relationships or interactions. Mm -hmm. And if it's not authentic, it's going to be dissatisfying and lonely-making. So is it a red flag when someone can't spend their time alone, Louise? When they can't spend yeah. their time alone? That they're not comfortable being oh. alone? Um. 
I don't know that I have an answer for that per se. I mean, that's that's sort of a almost a clinical question. Wendy might have a thought or two on that. Um, but I think it is healthy for most people to have time on their own uh, if they're using it wisely. And maybe there's a, um, a disconnect there. People, Some people may feel lost when they're alone, that they take their, their um, identity and their rootedness entirely by the environment they're in, and they don't have their own centeredness. But Wendy, I'd ha- happily listen to how you would think about mm. them. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think what you might be speaking to, Larry, is the fact that um, that a lot of feelings can come up when someone is alone that they that feel unbearable, mm. um, and that the the promise of those um, being diminished with connection, with being uh, out of whatever that space is, uh, is attractive. Um, we, but to to what Louise was saying, I do think the capacity to be alone sometimes uh, is important for all the reasons that um, the positive benefits of 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 time by oneself can be helpful. Um, we also want to be sure that someone feels that they have capacity to be with their feelings, because we all know that grieving means being with really uncomfortable feelings and and distress. We know that it the ways that people adapt to loss um, means that they're going to have to touch down on those feelings. So if the reason that someone doesn't want to be alone is because that's when the feelings come up and they're trying to do everything they can to get away from that, that can, over time, if that's chronic, that can become a problem. What What goes on in our brain when we feel loneliness. Mm-hmm. What, what What is it saying to all our emotions? Right. And you, you talked about loneliness as an emotion. We tend to think of it more as a syndrome because there's a cascade of things that are happening in the brain. We think largely because we are social species. If we're not feeling socially connected, if we don't have a social safety net, if we don't have somebody that has our back, we are essentially like the hunter-gatherers and the lion is nearby and we don't have any protection. It's just us. Um, So we need those people. And in the absence of people, and not only having the people, but thinking you have the people, perceiving that you have a good community around you is very um, uh, healthful. And in the brain, when you perceive that you don't have those protections, you essentially become hypervigilant to threat in the environment, social threat in particular. It's like you need it so much, you're on the alert for signs that you maybe you're not getting it. You're looking for it and, oh, but that interaction that I had with the cashier, she didn't pay any attention to me. She just pushed my stuff on through. And you could tend, and under those circumstances, if you're feeling threatened, to interpret that as something about me. It's my problem I must be doing something wrong. And so you become more withdrawn. You're less likely to engage because you think you're going to get something adverse in response. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The more you expect that, the more likely you're like you're going to elicit that from other people. And that plays out in how you behave, how you think, how you feel. And the more of this behavioral confirmation, we call it, that you engage in, the more likely it is that you're just going to spiral deeper and deeper into loneliness. That's when acute loneliness becomes chronic loneliness. And that's a 
a, a really serious problem. I mean, like I say, and like you said, everybody feels lonely sometimes, but sure. we get out of that loop. But this, what's happening in the brain that allows us to keep cycling into a worse and worse state is where we really pay a big price. Which could lead to depression. Leads to depression, leads to physical health problems. It mm. leads to changes in your genes and how they're expressed. It's all-consuming. So, Wendy, um, to me, just personally, grief and loneliness kind of were made for each other. Um, mm. It seems like loneliness is a longer-lasting emotion in the grief process that just hangs around maybe more than others and doesn't mm. want to leave. It, it, Yes, no, maybe, individual to each person? Um, I, I, well, I'll say a few things in response to that. One, speaking to the first point that they go together, absolutely, because grief, when we're talking about grief over a death loss, right? Because mm. we can grieve over non-death losses as well. But but grief over a death loss is about a relationship. Um, and so if we're talking about the concept of loneliness having to do with feeling connected and relating to others, and you had a person, we'll speak about the loss of one person for, for the time being, this person who got you, who uh, where there was unconditionality in in love, there was uh, an, an ability to be real and authentic. We were talking about that earlier, where you can you know not be your best self all the time and right. know that that's okay. Um, where where that person was meeting all of those needs and they're no longer physically here, the fact that you would continue to feel loneliness and you said this before, Larry, for that person for the person who uniquely got you, mm -hmm. who uniquely accepted you, who you can be, uh, you know, show show all the the dimensions of yourself, even those you're 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 you know not a fan of, um, that wanting that back, wanting that acceptance, that connection, and speaking to Louise's point before, that sense of security and safety that those kinds of connections and attachments offer us, it makes so much sense that that loneliness can continue. Um, the second point that came to my mind was as uh, someone who, who has practiced with grievers, and I will say particularly this comes up with, with those who have lost a spouse, it is for the, the best of copers, the people who have the most adaptive, uh, helpful coping skills in place, still the number one thing that they come to say they struggle with. So it is not a... Um, a sign of pathology or that someone isn't coping effectively because again it, it has it's speaking to a very very specific and unique relationship that met so many special needs that even if you have wonderful friends and supportive family which many people don't but mm -hmm. if you were in that position still having loneliness for that special relationship that has been I won't say lost, but has now been transformed without the person physically present. Um, that is tough and prolonged. So makes a lot of sense that that's, that's the thing that sticks around even. And Larry, I don't know you well, but I know enough to know that you started this podcast, right? right. So you've got some, some coping skills in place because you are doing something meaningful in the way that you are through this podcast and trying to help others and come to understand uh, through our discussion, even in your own process. And yet I'm hearing that that loneliness persists. Yeah. Yeah, no, it 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 does, and and so, um, 
I feel most lonely at night when mm -hmm. it's dark out in the wintertime and now I'm eating alone and yeah. I would love to talk with someone or watch TV with someone or download my day. Or when I travel, getting to the hotel room after work, I want to call or text Sarah and hear how her day was and I can't. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, all those things I think is a real adjustment uh, when you've lost your spouse. Um, or mm -hmm. your best friend or a child. We were talking earlier about types of loneliness and dimensions of loneliness. And in our work, we've been able to parse this idea of loneliness into sorts. <laughs> so there is what we call an intimate level of loneliness, which is very much related to what you're talking about. It typically reflects what's going on in a person's romantic life, whether they have a spouse or not. Um, there is a relational component, which is, do they have close friends, confidants, sort of one-on-one -on -one close friends that um, satisfy a social need? There is a collective component, which is, do I feel part of a group? Do I feel part of my community? Do I feel part of society? And all of those dimensions are potent in and of themselves, but they tend to be very interconnected. So if you are lonely in one way, you're likely feeling it in other ways. And maybe because of this um, hole that's left in whatever dimension you're looking at um, isn't filled by other domains, right? right? But I think of the intimate connectedness component and what you were talking about missing and I think of Arthur Aaron's work where he talked about the intersecting self. Essentially, you have, if you think of me and my spouse is two circles on a diagram, and they're overlapped. And different couples have different degrees of overlap. But essentially, what you're talking about is an overlap of self. You've lost a part of yourself when you lost Sarah, and that's not easily replaced. So I think that's where um, the going home and trying to find the friend connections, it's good, but one has to recognize that that's not filling that need, right. the intimate need, because that's something different. Yeah. yeah. And remarrying doesn't necessarily do the job either. I mean, right. That person had a unique overlap that is never going to be replaced. True, true. Yeah, dating and getting remarried after grief, that's a whole other uh, yeah. <laughs> that's a whole other podcast that'll have you both back on. <laughs> um what does it do, though, loneliness do, Louise, to our self-esteem, kind of feeling like it's me against the world, nobody notices me, am I a one-off, am I, I hate to say this word, am I a loser, mm -hmm. am I perceived that way, um, I don't have friends, I don't have family, like, mm -hmm. um, what does that do to us? You're listening to the What About Grief podcast. We will get back to my discussion about loneliness with Dr. Louise Hockley and Wendy Lichtenthal in a moment. But I wanted to remind you that you can write to us at the show with your thoughts, ideas, or a description of your own grief journey. We appreciate hearing from you, and we like being connected with our listeners. So please reach out to us via email at whataboutgriefpod at gmail.com. Also, if you like the podcast and find it helpful, please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating, hit the subscribe button, and leave a review. All of this helps us grow the podcast and helps new listeners find the show. And share the link with those you know who are experiencing their own grief. 
the goal of the podcast is to help those like us navigate the confusing emotion that is grief. What does it do, though, loneliness do, Louise, to our self-esteem, kind of feeling like it's me against the world, nobody notices me, am I a one-off, am I, I hate to say this word, am I a loser, am I perceived that way, Um, I don't have friends, I don't have family, like, um, what does that do to us? (laughs) What does that do to us? (laughs) Well, I think the, what's not well recognized is even though loneliness is a stigmatizing state or, you know, you don't want to admit that you're lonely. Our society is still kind of stuck on viewing loneliness as a personal failure. There's a lot about the state of loneliness that is remediable. There are things people can do to help themselves. I mean, there are challenges. For some people, there are going to be more intractable problems that may make it difficult to connect. But there are steps people can take And I would say probably from the research we've done on interventions that have been tried that do help people, um, things like cognitive behavioral therapy are sometimes helpful because you're teaching people to reconceive how they're interpreting their environment. Is it really me? Maybe, Maybe that cashier who didn't talk to me had a bad day. She just had a car accident, and she wasn't ready to Mm. be forthcoming with me. Right. So it's Here, my download. Me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think, you know, there, in that sense, um, it's, not, it's not that you're a loser. It's, <laughs> it's you maybe need some pointers as how to resolve these feelings in yeah. your own life. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting better at this, and this is going to sound really weird, but I feel weird uh, going out to dinner by myself here in Chicago, in my hometown, versus when I'm on the road traveling, because I, I've my brain saying, "Oh, people will understand. You're on. The, you're a visitor, and you don't know anyone here, so you're having dinner alone. We're fine with you." Yeah. But oh, Larry, you're at the restaurant right around the corner from your house, and you're eating by yourself. You, <laughs> You are a loser. <laughs> Is my brain whacked out? Um, you know, I think it's not uncommon. I think that we've we've got to get to a point in our society, and I've I've been hopeful that the experiences we had during the pandemic have kind of opened us all up to the reality <laughs> that this is not to be taken lightly, um, and. Eating alone is not, nothing wrong with no, that. No, there's not. And I'm getting comfortable with it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's the rest of people who have to get used yeah. to this. Yeah, maybe. Eating yeah. alone. Yeah. But I was thinking about, um, as, as Louise, you were talking about the interventions that are out there, is that the other intervention um, certainly is, is more about... Um, uh, we think of in the grief realm, realm as grief literacy, and, and you might think of loneliness literacy, but just about what the value of connection is, what it is to know that you don't know what another person is going through, um, and to to bring a mindfulness uh, to that sort of thing, which, you know, we see, we definitely see movement in that direction, but we can do better. We can help people be better better able to hold what a grieving person puts out there so that they don't want to immediately leave the party and run home. Um, We can do better to to have people find words to say, to ask someone who is 
on their own, um, how they're doing. And we can help the grieving individual or anyone who is feeling lonely um, find words to say that are, you know, kind of walk that line between sharing authentically what they might need in a way that doesn't push people away, uh, which is often the fear, right? If I totally reveal myself mm. uh, and someone doesn't have capacity, and sometimes people don't have capacity, that that person's going to, you know, reject me in some way. And then, you know, then you feel like a loser. So the other thing that we can do is teach people to kind of help their their um, their picker, <laughs> help hmm. them be able to pick out people who have capacity. And when they do find that, be able to to share more, to connect, to be more vulnerable, to be more authentic. And I think that's, you know, the other piece that is, um, it, it's not, that's not pathology. That is about society's capacity and then an individual's capacity who was part of that society to know how to um, be a caring, compassionate individual. There's a whole movement, um, many people might know about compassionate communities, right? This movement to to build um, that, that, that sense of compassion toward others that we could all learn from. So, Wendy, let me ask you, let's talk about long-term relationships and loneliness following the loss of a partner or, or spouse mm-hmm. or a breakup. Some people in, start dating almost immediately. Others maybe never date again for whatever reason. Some people yep. remarry in their 80s and 90s right after they lost a spouse. So, why do both sides kind of happen. It truly is a case-by-case basis. We have everybody's story makes sense Mm -hmm. is something I feel most comfortable saying. So why in a given person situation, it made sense that um, that they felt like a relationship um, soon after a loss made sense for them or fit or felt like a need. Um, If we interview them and find out their story, um, stories about their pre-existing needs before they even lost that that, that person, their partner, um, and that perhaps that partner met and that they're now longing to have met again because it's it's painful to not have them be met, uh, or someone who had a really healthy, high-functioning relationship um, where, uh, where there was an illness and it was very, there, there was grief along the way, uh, there a lot of discussion about what, ha- what might happen afterwards, a sense of permission, all of these things that might leave someone saying, you know what, I, I, I feel like this is part of a, a life that feels worth living to me is having uh, that kind of connection and relationship. And I feel permission to pursue it. I don't feel like I'm betraying um, my, my my partner by doing this. Um, if all of those are ingredients there, it might make sense. Um, we can think about other people who had, again, Again, each story makes sense. Sure. So if that another person had an amazing, that same kind of amazing relationship um, and felt very sated by it and felt like they have access to that partnership and just didn't have a longing for something else, that they, they were able um, to keep it in a way. Uh, they might say, nothing else is for me. I have so many people I've worked with who say, I just still feel married. Mm. And so that's just where I'm at when they, I've had people who've tried dating and then come back to, you know what, I tried it and I just feel like I'm a married person. I have other people who say that same thing, but they mean it because they feel guilty and they feel a sense of betrayal. Mm -hmm. And those are two, I would distinguish those two people. Um, And there's a lot that we can do to support someone who 
authentically wants that relationship, but is uh, suffering from the thought that they are betraying their spouse or that they're doing something wrong. And um, so that would be something that someone might um, want to to speak with someone, whether in their in you know their community. Uh, a religious leader or a, a mental health provider or a counselor about to just find a safe space to unpack that a little bit. Louise? Yeah, what what we were talking about here, what the two of you were talking about, was something that reminded me of this notion of continuing bonds, which is mm-hmm. relatively recent, but this notion that it's actually perhaps adaptive to carry your relationship with that person with you. They are still alive to you. And it may be a painful with you for some time, and then it eases, and eventually it gets to the point where it's a comforting presence. This person will never leave you, even if you were to get remarried. It's something that's continued to be part of you. I, th- I think of that very much for in my own circumstance, where it was my mother who died, and it's been over 15 years. But I do remember feeling this initial numbness, and then she didn't go away. Mm. And she's still with me. Mm. I talk with her. <laughs> I can hear her reactions to what I'm doing. And it's very warming. It's very comforting. Security. To, yeah. 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 So, Louise, what are some of the unhealthy ways people try to cope with loneliness? I think one of the things that is common, and I'll say this especially from a research perspective, uh, when people are trying to do interventions, there's a false assumption that you just need people. Mm-hmm. Go see people. Right. Socializing, that's that's your problem. But it isn't the problem, as we've been talking about. It's not about having people. It's about being able to be real with people, being authentic to yourself, authentic to the people around you, having interactions, relationships that are real. Yeah, yeah. high quality. Mm-hmm deep. So I think that's one of the things. So it's a, we're doing a disservice if we put, for example, a bunch of lonely people together in the room and say, okay, now should be all, be, all should be better, right? Doesn't work that way. Yeah. Wendy? There are ways that people soothe themselves or try to get away from feelings. And again, this cuts across for all sorts of difficult feelings we have that ultimately... Um, are, are not helpful. Um, so I, I don't know that I want to name the list of all <laughs> okay. the things to give people ideas either. But we we know that, you know, people can, people can do things and they don't even have to be the kind of classic uh, health behavior things that might, people might do um, from, you know, um, eating, smoking, drinking, substances, that kind of thing that we, we often talk about. But um, but it might just be how they are interacting. This is something Louise was raising earlier, just how they are interacting with others that ultimately doesn't get their needs met. Um, and so in that way, we can call it unhealthy or unhelpful. Um, so I, I do think there are um, some obvious ways that people try to find uh, a way to to um, get away from the bad feelings that come with that are you know our loneliness and that accompany loneliness, um, and that only then kind of get them um, more entrenched in feeling badly, and then you end up feeling badly about feeling badly. So um, so I think you know what what might be helpful to turn to is is to think more about what we can do to. Uh, that is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, how to find the people where we can be, like I said before, we can be authentic. Um, find ways to educate 
the people in our world. If you do have someone in your world, um, again, because you can be in a room full of people and feel like the loneliest person there, um, to let to to truly connect. Mm-hmm. I think that's a direction we can go um, that would be helpful. And Louise, it, just last question here, and and Wendy touched on it, but what are some things that we can learn to do to be kind of comfortable with our loneliness, you know, volunteering, you know, being, getting involved in something. I think Mm -hmm. it's always reasonable advice to suggest that you do things that get you out of yourself. Do for others, whether that's volunteering um, or maybe it's just an engagement in a community group that has some, um, you might say a higher calling. I mean, they're, they're devoted to some cause, something that you can invest in We talked earlier about making meaning and doing things that have purpose. That's very protective in terms of staving off feelings of loneliness. Yeah. Absolutely. I do want to add to this Mm -hmm. point, though, that the other thing that we can teach people um, is what we might call more acceptance-based, which is to not get in a fight with feeling lonely after losing someone significant because it makes so much sense, mm. right? So if we fight off feelings that we think shouldn't be there, they 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 dial up in volume. Um, whereas if we understand and then can even transform the meaning of that loneliness um, because, you know, and Larry, I, I can speak to you because you've spoken of Sarah, right? Mm-hmm. There's a reason you feel that because of your unique and special relationship with Sarah. And so we can infuse meaning into that loneliness that is different um, that has to do with, I feel this, it makes sense that I feel this, and even I accept that I feel this because that's how special this relationship you know, has been and continues to be mm-hmm. just in a different in different ways. So there's a lot to be said for not getting in that loop um, that Louise was um, referring to uh, um, or thinking something's wrong with me that ends up only perpetuating the problem and rather allowing a wave of loneliness um, be just that and then saying, okay, and now what can I do about it? So it's that I shouldn't feel this way. I got to get rid of it. I got to get away from it. Um, that can actually, you know, backfire. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is something to normalize um, moments of loneliness so they don't trip up on themselves. While also, again, I don't want to diminish the need that we have as a society to 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 uh, be, um, to, to, improve our our sense of compassion for each other's recognize when there is chronic loneliness how to intervene um so i think that's very important but in an intrapsychic way in a moment when someone's feeling that way if they say i shouldn't be feeling this way something's wrong with me uh in ways that you end up trying to get away from the feelings and again we talked about unhealthy behaviors and the path that can go that's where there can be a problem so i'm just putting a plug in for letting a moment be a moment and transforming the meaning when it is connected to such a precious relationship as I get why I feel this way. It makes sense. This was such a special relationship. Wow. A lot to um, digest and unpack here. And, uh, you know, time flew by and and I I really appreciate you both um, taking some time to help me uh, and our listeners on a really important topic that, um, should be talked about more in public, right? Indeed. Yeah. Thank you both. Absolutely. You're very Thank welcome. Thank you, Larry.
When I was preparing for this episode, I came across a website called The Loneliness Project, which shared weekly stories of those dealing with loneliness. Random people wrote down and submitted their feelings of the topic. Though the website isn't publishing active stories anymore, it remains a source for those who need it. I wanted to wrap up this podcast reading some of what has been posted on the website so we all understand how common and how prevalent loneliness is. Here's the first one from a 24-year-old male. I spent two hours alone wandering around in Ikea because I was too nervous to ask people to come with me. I ate two hot dogs and bought nothing. This from a 60-year-old male. Christmas guts me every year. I already accept there will be not even a phone call for me. Here's another one. I looked out the window to see other apartment buildings with a few scattered lights turned on and wondered who else might be awake with me. That one from a 52-year-old. Here's one from a 15-year-old. I was the only kid that had no parent to kiss or hug them goodbye because my mom was a single parent and couldn't afford to be late for work. I just kind of imagine this kid at the bus, you know, waiting to get on and all the other parents are there with their kid and he felt so alone, loneliness at 15 years old. Here's one from a 25-year-old female. Loneliness to me is not knowing which direction to step and watching those around me walk miles ahead without looking back. Wow, that's, that's intense. And the last one from a 24-year-old female. For without loneliness, how could we ever truly appreciate company? As you have heard from these quotes, every age, every gender, and literally every one of us will experience loneliness in our life. It's heavy. And do we recognize it when we are out with our friends and loved ones? I'm reminded of my grief and isolation and Sarah's absence every morning when I roll over in bed and don't see her there on the pillow next to me. There's no magic pill to cure loneliness, but we can all work to be more present with each other. Let's make sure we reach out to those around us who we may know that are dealing with loneliness and isolation. Maybe extend a hand, invite them out for a coffee, or just be an ear and listen to them. Call, text, or show up at their door and surprise them. Just give them support. My thanks to Dr. Louise Hockley and Dr. Wendy Lichtenthal. What About Grief is available monthly on all major podcast listening platforms. Please follow the podcast as well as rate and review the show on Apple Podcast. The executive producer of What About Grief is Marsha Anderson. Logo artwork was designed by Ted Studios. This episode was recorded at BAM Studios in Chicago. And lastly, feel free to email us at whataboutgriefpod at gmail.com. <laughs>